to the YouTube daredevil who has now had his pilot's license revoked. The FAA saying he intentionally crashed that plane in his viral video. Will Reeve has more. It was a terrifying video seen by millions, a man leaping from a plane's cockpit as the aircraft falls out of the sky. But this morning, the FAA says what happened to YouTuber Trevor Jacob was intentional. That's why I always fly with a parachute. The incident has been under investigation by federal authorities since January. And now, in a letter to Jacob obtained by ABC News, FAA officials say they're revoking the YouTube star's pilot license, saying you operated this flight to purposely crash. The FAA did not only the right thing, if I have any criticism, it's that they should have done it a little bit sooner. There is no way that somebody with this level of brazen disrespect for aviation and for the flying public in general and anybody who might be below uh, can pull a stunt like this and intentionally crash an airplane. Uh, this person does not ever belong in the skies. The letter says that he attached multiple cameras strapped on a parachute and opened the door before saying the engine had failed. Authorities say Jacob made no attempt to contact air traffic control, made no attempt to restart the engine, and made no attempt to find a safe place to land. This was a very appropriate act by the FAA today to tear up his pilot's license permanently. The FAA cannot prosecute this or any case, only hand out fines and revoke and suspend certificates. Now, when reached for comment by ABC News, Trevor Jacob responded, the FAA brought up some astonishing observations. Guys. Wow. That's it. <laughs> you operated this flight to purposely crash, the FAA declared. I saw that clip recently on the news, and it made me think of those who the book of Jude is addressing, those who the church has described throughout history as apostates, those who were part of the faith but intentionally jumped ship and crashed their faith on the rocks below, choosing to wander and stray from Jesus Christ. The book of Jude is a book addressing this reality, the reality of apostasy. People who know the truth, who have heard the truth, but have decided to reject the truth. They jump ship and end up crashing their faith. And Jude is a book written to address this reality. Not only a warning to all of us in the faith to, to hold fast to the truths of our faith so that we don't crash our faith, but also to warn us against the apostates in our world and in the church who actually, after crashing their own faith, seek to lead others to do the very same thing. It's been a danger that the church has had to contend with for 2,000 years. Apostasy to know, to hear, to reject the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself describes the way of the apostate like this in his famous parable of the seed and the soils in Luke chapter 8. Jesus says this, now the parable means this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. 
As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Friends, Jesus here is describing the sad reality of those who are apostates, those who hear the truth, those who know the truth, even those who spend time among us, the people of the faith, and yet, for various reasons, fall away. They fall away bearing evidence that they never truly had a saving faith to begin with. This is a sad state of affairs, friends. It's a sad state of affairs that we as God's people should, should mourn over and, and lament and, and have hearts of passion, compassion and love for those who have fallen away, seeking to bring them back to the truths of the faith. But it's also a reality that should cause us, as, as Jude encourages us throughout his letter, to contend, to contend for the faith. So that we guard our own faiths, guard the faiths of our brothers and sisters, but also guard ourselves against those who would seek to lead others astray in the way of apostasy, crashing their faith. Well, this is the topic of the letter of Jude. Jude one of the shortest books in the Bible, but one of the most powerful and profound. Today, as we continue our series in Jude, we're going to move on to verses 3 and 4, two of the most significant and important verses in the whole Bible, two verses that have really been a, a beacon guiding the church for 2,000 years. Like we saw last week, two short verses, but full of profound truth that we need to know, that we need to take to heart as God's people. If you were with us last week as we open up the, our series in the book of Jude, Jude, you'll remember that Jude is a call to arms. It's a call to action. It's a, it's a spurring on of the church to contend for the faith. And he began his letter last week by reminding us of who we are and what our blessings are, why we are fighting this battle, why we contend. We are God's called people. We are God's beloved people. We are God's kept people. And we understand these privileges and these blessings and that understanding should motivate us to contend all the more for our faith. So this morning we're going to continue on in Jude verses 3 and 4. Let me, let me read our passage for us this morning. You can follow along on the screens or in your own Bible. Uh, I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, keep it open on your lap because we're going to be referencing some important truths this morning. Jude goes on after, after his opening introductions, after his benediction, blessing, his prayer. He goes on in verse 3, Beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here, Jude calls the church. He calls us to do two important things in these two verses. Number one, he calls the church to be people who contend for the faith. Friends, we need to contend for the faith. Jude opens this charge to contend with the word beloved. He, he says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you. Friends, it's no mistake that Jude would open his charge to us with the word beloved. 
Jude isn't just throwing around flowery language here. No, I believe Jude chose this word beloved at the outset of his charge to us, God's people, the church. He chose this word very intentionally because Jude wanted to remind us at the very outset as he calls us to contend for the faith, he wants us to remember specifically who we are as a word of encouragement to us because Jude understood that contending for the faith is not going to be popular in our world. This has been the case for 2,000 years for God's people. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, look, they hated me, they're going to hate you also. The world doesn't like to hear the truth. Remember last week, Jude identified himself as a servant of Jesus, a slave of Jesus. That's who we are as God's people. We submit ourselves to his will. That's not a popular message in our world today. And so when we go into the world and we contend for the truth of God's revelation, we can expect to face backlash. We can expect to face opposition. We can expect the world to respond to us with scorn. A few years back, I was writing uh, uh, an article for an apologetics website called the Christian Worldview Network. I wrote an article on the religion of Islam. Actually, my dad and I co-authored it together, and we wrote this article on the religion of Islam, and uh, it was interesting. About a month after we wrote this article, and it was posted and kind of got disseminated through you know, various apologetic ministries, uh, I, got a, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine, a fellow pastor. He called up and he said, Hey, Jason, have you ever seen this website, cruel.com? I'm like, no, it's like one of my bookmarks. Yeah, I check it every day, cruel.com. No, I've never seen cruel.com. I have no idea, right? Well, my buddy said, Jason, you've got to check out this website, cruel.com. Now, you can check it out yourself. It doesn't exist anymore, so uh, you can go there. But 15 years ago, there was this website, cruel.com. And this guy had apparently made it his mission to scour the Internet looking for examples of what he deemed bigotry, intolerance, and, and hatred. Okay, And so I go to cruel.com and I start scrolling on the homepage and sure enough it's a series of links, a series of articles that this guy had highlighted as examples of cruelty, of hatred, of intolerance. And so the very first article listed was about a neo-Nazi youth rap group. Okay, Neo-Nazi youth rap group. I scrolled down again. Another article was about a German pedophile sex trafficking ring that just got busted. Right in between the neo-Nazi Hitler Youth Rap Group and the German pedophile sex trafficking ring, there was an article titled, Don't Invite the Carlsons to Your Next Interfaith Gathering. (laughs) I mean, my jaw dropped when I saw this. I'm like, are you kidding me? Here here they have my article smashed in between neo-Nazi rappers and German sex traffickers. And so I clicked on the link, and the guy went on to describe, he quoted my article. He quoted the end of my article where I said Muslims, uh, I I said something to the fact that Muslims have been hijacked by a false religion, a false prophet, and a false god, and we need to be praying for our Muslim friends and neighbors that they come to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that quote, I was deemed intolerant, a bigot, a hater, I was worthy of a place on cruel.com. Friends, understand this is the way the world will view you as a Christian if you dare to stand for truth. 
It's been that way for 2,000 years, and so we need to be ready for that reality. But again, this is why Jude reminds us right here at the outset, we are God's beloved. Don't forget that, friends. You are beloved. And remember this, to contend for the faith is not to be cruel, but to contend for the faith is to truly love God. It's to love his truth. It's to love the lost people in our lives who have been deceived by the enemy. Remember people out in the world, the, the apostates, they are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And we love them and we care about them. And so we speak truth to them. But we need to be ready. We're not going to win any popularity contest with the world as we do this. And so Jude reminds us, friends, you are beloved no matter what the world says about you. No matter how intolerant they say you are, no matter what a bigot they call you or whatever name they want to throw at you, you are beloved by God. Jude goes on then to share for us the intent of his writing. Now this is really fascinating because verse 3, after reminding us of who we are, we are beloved. He says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now, this is fascinating because Jude intended to write a different letter. He wanted to write a letter of encouragement about the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I think that would have been a fascinating letter to read, right? The half-brother of Jesus who, who lived with Jesus and saw his ministry and saw him rise from the dead. Man, I would love to hear what Jude has to say about our salvation, can you imagine, like, Jude's writing this letter, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit prompts and says, Jude, no, 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 we, we need to encourage the church to contend for the faith. And so Jude takes his letter, he t crumples it up, throws it up on the floor. Now, what if that letter had the answer to the age-old debate of predestination and free will? <laughs> and it's crumpled up on some floor in some archaeological heap somewhere, right? Like, we don't know what Jude was going to write about. But that would have been a fascinating letter. But the Holy Spirit prompted Jude to write something different. Not any less important. In fact, the Holy Spirit deemed it far more important. The Holy Spirit encouraged Jude. No, Jude, I don't want you to write about that. The church needs to hear about this. They need to know and be encouraged to contend for the faith. The word contend there, friends, in the Greek, epigonizomai. It's an interesting word. It means to struggle, to labor, to fight. The root is agonizo, which is to agonize, to agonize over something. The, the ep there is a preposition of intensity. So we're going to agonize intensely. Some of your translations might, might translate this verse, contend earnestly for the faith. This is a warfare. This is a war, word of warfare. This is a word of struggle, of battle. The, the tug of war silhouettes you see behind me. This is what it means to contend, to contend earnestly. We're struggling, we're battling for the faith. This is what Jude is calling us to. The faith here that we're, we're called to contend for, the Greek word is pistis, it, it means trust or belief, or the content of what is to be believed. And this is the way that Jude is using this word, the faith. He, he's using it not in reference to our personal faith in Jesus, but rather to the content of the whole body of what we are called to believe as God's people. It's the totality of the biblical worldview 
and all of its implications for our lives. That's what Jude is calling us to contend for. When he says contend for the faith, he is talking about the whole biblical worldview and everything that it means for our lives. It's very interesting when we look at how the New Testament describes the faith. The New Testament uses a number of terms to describe this faith, this totality, this biblical worldview. Acts 20, 27, for example, describes it as the whole counsel of God. This is everything. When we talk about contending for the faith, we are contending for the whole counsel of God. Paul in 1 Timothy calls it sound doctrine. He calls it the truth. He calls it sound words. He calls it the good deposit, the trustworthy word. This is the faith that we are to contend for. It's the truth. It's the whole counsel of God. Now, friends, why does the faith matter so much? Why does the faith matter? Two reasons I want to encourage us to understand this morning. Number one, we cannot live rightly if we believe wrongly. Do you understand that, friends? You cannot live rightly if you have wrong beliefs. My daughter Addie this next month is going to be taking her driver's exam. She's turning 16 in June. And so for the last, you know, nine months or so, 10 months, we've been practicing like crazy. She's been studying all the traffic laws, all the traffic rules, you know. She, we've been out practicing driving. As we're driving, I'm reminding her of, you know, how to do things. You know, this is the law here. This is the rule here. This is the technique for this situation, right? Like we're, we're going through all of these things because she needs to understand how to do it the right way so that she, number one, doesn't crash my car, number two, doesn't kill herself, or number three, kill somebody else, right? Like, understanding the driver's manual and the laws and the way the car works, all of those things are incredibly important if you're going to be successful at driving. You need to believe the right things about the car and the laws and the rules of the road if you're going to be a successful driver. And friends, understand, it is the exact same way when it comes to our faith. The Bible is God's driver's manual for our lives. And so we study God's word, and we mine God's word to the, for the depths of the truth that he's provided for us. We root our lives in this truth because we understand that the more we know about God's will and ways for our lives, the more we are going to live rightly. You can't live the right way unless you believe the right things. But the second reason why the faith is so important for us and why Jude calls us to contend for the faith is because a church that abandons the faith is a church that has lost its anchor. Friends, this is so significant and so important a church that abandons its faith is a church that will be set adrift on the sea of relativism and blown every which way by the ever-changing winds of cultural opinion. Relativism is the idea that there is no such thing as the faith. There is no such thing as truth. Truth is subjective. Truth is what you want it to be. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. That is relativism. And when a church abandons the faith, they become adrift on this sea of relativism, swayed by the ever-changing whims of our culture. And friends, understand that sea is deadly. 
churches don't survive the sea of relativism. And why? They don't survive the sea of relativism because they end up looking no different than the culture around them. To be adrift without an anchor is to look no different than the culture around us. And that is deadly for a church. We've seen examples over the last couple decades of denominations all across the world here in America, once faithful denominations, once faithful churches that anchored their faith in the word of God, who have lost their anchor and have become set adrift on the sea of relativism. And these churches and these denominations are dying today. They're dying because they have no anchor. You know, it's interesting how many of our churches in our culture today are embracing the, the ways of the world. Probably the most prominent issue in our culture today is the whole LGBTQ agenda. And so many churches around our nation are basically throwing their arms wide open in embrace of this agenda, this lifestyle that God says is against his will and plan and ways for humanity. And these churches, friends, are paying the price for this. They're dying because of it. You show me a church, friends, with a rainbow flag hanging outside of it, I will show you a church that's dying. And I don't say that condescendingly. I say that mournfully. I say that mournfully because these are once faithful churches who were anchored to the truth, who have now set themselves adrift on the sea of relativism, and they're dying because of it. They cannot thrive, they will not thrive because you can never be blessed by God when you turn your back on the faith, on his truth. Let me just share an illustration of how the faith speaks to this issue in particular, this LGBT cultural agenda that we see so prominent that so many churches are falling to. Many of my progressive friends today like to say things like, love is love. Love is love. Doesn't that sound good? Friends, that's a nonsense statement. It's meaningless. It means nothing. You cannot define something by itself. That's like saying, this podium is this podium, right? That doesn't tell me anything about it. That doesn't define it. That doesn't describe it. Love is love. It's so popular in our culture today, but it's a nonsense statement. What is love? Let, let me give you a real definition of love. Love is the total commitment to the betterment of another person. That's what love is. Love is the total commitment to the betterment of another person. When I tell somebody that I love them, I am making the commitment to them that I am going to do everything humanly possible in my power and my ability to see their betterment in life. Now that's a true definition of love. Now the question is, well, how do you define a person's betterment, right? If love is the total commitment to the betterment of another person, what does a person's betterment look like? Friends, a person's betterment is defined by our creator. A person's betterment is defined by the one who made us, the one who designed us. And so when I talk about, when I tell my wife, Kim, for example, that I love her, I am telling her that I am totally committed to her betterment as defined by God, revealed in Scripture. That's my whole mission in life as her husband, is to seek her betterment as defined by God. 
And friends, that should be our goal as followers of Jesus Christ. When we talk about loving one another, loving our neighbor, loving our wives, our husbands, our kids, we are talking about being totally committed to their betterment as defined by God and as defined by the faith. Now, what does the faith tell us about the whole issue of human sexuality? Well, there's all kinds of things that the Bible tells us about this matter, but if you want to break it down to the very heart of the matter, Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, very clearly what God's will is for human sexuality. Jesus says here, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, what is God's will and plan? What does the faith say about God's will for human sexuality? Jesus tells us very clearly. Jesus, our creator, who became a man to reveal truth to us, tells us that in the beginning when he created the world, his design for human sexuality was for one man and one woman to come together as one flesh, that's a marriage relationship, and let no man separate that. One man, one woman, together for life. That's God's plan for human sexuality. Anything else is a perversion of that plan. One man, one woman, united for life. This was God's will. This is the faith when it comes to human sexuality. Now, friends, understand, this is why we speak biblical truth on this issue to our culture today. Because we love our LGBTQ friends and neighbors. God loves our LGBTQ friends and neighbors. And we love them enough to speak truth to them because they are living outside of the boundaries of God's will and plan for their lives. And so when we speak truth on this issue, friends, that is not hate, but that is true love. That is true compassion. And so we need to contend for the faith. This is why the faith is so important. The faith is so important because we cannot live rightly if we believe wrongly. And it's so important because if we abandon the faith, friends, we have lost our anchor, set adrift on the sea of relativism. Jude goes on. He describes more about this faith for us. He calls this faith a once-for-all faith. The, the word there in the Greek, once for all, is one word, it's hapox. It means unique, done once, lasting. In other words, there is only one faith, friends. There's only one. Anything else is a counterfeit. There is one faith revealed by God, once, done once, for all time, never changing. It's a lasting faith. That's what this word means, hapox, once for all. There's one faith. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6, he says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, are you getting the picture here? There is only one 
There's one God, there's one way to salvation, there's one truth, there's one faith, right? This is the affirmed reality throughout the word of God. There's only one. And anything else is a counterfeit. Let me give you an example of a counterfeit Christianity that's at work in our world today. Many of you are aware that, as I mentioned earlier, so many of our denominations and churches are fracturing over this LGBTQ issue in our culture today. Now, friends, understand, I'm not trying to pick on this issue, but this is the issue for the church today. This is the watershed issue in our day and age. You seniors who are graduating, this is going to be the issue that you are going to have to contend with for the rest of your life. And so we need to understand truth from error. Some of you in our church come out of the Methodist denomination. You come here in recent years because your heart has been broken seeing your faith be unmoored from the anchor of the truth. And now your denomination has split and has fractured and hundreds of churches across our country and around the world are leaving the denomination. Why? It's because the denomination has embraced the LGBTQ agenda and said, we're going to throw our arms wide open in embrace of this. We're going to support gay marriage. We're going to affirm LGBTQ clergy. We're going to ordain them into our churches to lead our churches, right? And the church has been fractured as a result of this. I came across a quote this past fall by a woman named Bishop Karen Olivetto. She's a Methodist bishop. She's one of the leaders of the Methodist Church in America. She's an ordained bishop in the Methodist Church. She's also an openly lesbian woman. And speaking of this fracture in their churches, she says, sometimes the Holy Spirit runs ahead of us and gives us a glimpse of the future to which we are called. This is certainly the case across the denomination where LGBTQ persons have been examined at every step of the ordination process and found to possess the gifts and graces for ordained ministry. Friends, this isn't truth. Nothing you see here is truth. She uses all kinds of biblical words and it sounds good, but what she is expressing is a counterfeit Christianity. This is not the once-for-all faith given to us in Scripture. It's a counterfeit. And how can I be so confident in that? I'm confident in that because God has given us a test for truth. The test for truth goes like this. God's Word says that He is immutable. That means He's unchanging. That means when God speaks truth to us, it is once-for-all truth. It doesn't change. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't shift with the culture's whims and changes and shifting positions. It's a once-for-all truth given to us by God. And so when God gives us truth through the prophets and the apostles, we can be confident because he is immutable and unchanging that what he has said in the past will never change in the future. And so we have to test everything by God's immutable standard, his word. And so when somebody says something like, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit runs ahead of us and calls us into a new kind of future, that is blasphemy, friends. The Holy Spirit will never run ahead of us and call us into any future that goes against God's revealed truth in the once-for-all faith. 
This is truth. This is a counterfeit. There's a battle being raged in our world today between truth and error. And you need to understand that, friends. Jude goes on and he tells us that this once for all faith was delivered. The Greek word here is paradidomai. It means to hand over, to entrust. Friends, this word is so important. Delivered, paradidomai. Why is this so important? It's so important because it means that this faith, this once for all faith that we possess isn't ours to change. This faith belongs to God. And God delivered it to us. And he entrusted it to us. And this faith was not given to us with the intent that we would change it or that it would evolve or shift or change with culture. No, this was delivered or entrusted to us to guard and to cherish and to protect. It's God's faith once for all delivered to us. And who are we? Jude says we are the saints. Hagios, holy, dedicated to God, set apart. We are in the world, but we are no longer of the world. That's what it means to be a saint, friends, to be set apart for God. Here again, we see the reality that God's truth is divisive. God's truth will inevitably set us apart from the world around us. It always has. All the way back in the Old Testament, God's people had to decide what side of this battle between truth and error am I going to land on? And am I going to stand on God's word or am I going to go with the ever-changing whims of culture around us? Even back in the Old Testament, even when God led his people out of Egypt into the promised land, Joshua had to challenge the Israelites with this very same reality. Joshua, as they were coming into the promised land, says to the Israelites, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me,